0: But with that comes intubation and pressors. And that's okay.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Pete Script Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas.
2: And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C.
1: Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete Script Podcast?
2: Absolutely. So, PEDSCRIT is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics.
1: And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at PEDSCRIT.com. We're hoping to add to the online community of PEDSICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics.
2: Yes, PEDSCRITpodcast at gmail.com. Please reach out. And Zach, who are we talking with today?
1: So we're excited to have Dr. Anus Jayakar and Dr. Minette Ness Koshinwala with us. Dr. Jayakar Carr is a neurointensivist and the director of neurocritical care at Nicholas Children's Hospital. He did his pediatric residency at Nicholas Children's and his neurology residency and epilepsy fellowship at Boston Children's.
2: Yes. Dr. Ness Cochinwala just started her attending position as a pediatric intensivist at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson in New Jersey. She did her critical care fellowship at Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, and she is interested in medical education and data science research.
1: Today we're talking about status epilepticus how we define it, how we treat it, and how we can expect the field to evolve in the future.
2: Yes. Thank you for listening, and let's get right to the content.
1: Well, hey, everyone. Thanks, Anuj and Manette, for joining us today on, on our episode on Status Epilepticus. To get things started, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
0: Sure. My name's Manette Wall. I actually just started my first attending position as a pediatric intensivist in New Jersey at Rutgers, Robert Wood Johnson. But I did recently finish my pediatric critical care fellowship at Nicholas Children's in Miami with Anoush. And I'm pretty interested in both medical education and data science research, but I love talking about status epilepticus and kind of just general things to educate the general picky
2: world. Oh, absolutely. Definitely the bread and butter of critical care medicine here. Yeah,
0: you see it so much. And What I didn't realize when I started fellowship and even as starting and attending is I always thought it was more clear cut. And then the seizure versus not seizure, the fact that you can't always determine right away. And then there's always, you know, you want to get an EEG, but that takes time. So kind of figuring it out and learning the ins and outs of it from Anoush was really helpful.
3: Yeah.
2: And then Dr. Jayakar, where are you coming to us from today?
3: Sure. So my name is Anuj Jayakar. I'm coming from Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami. I am a neurointensivist by training and in practice, and I function as a director of neurocritical care at Nicholas Children's. I did my training in neurology and child neurology, followed by a fellowship training in epilepsy and neurocritical care. I, my main focus is on the management of status epilepticus, hence why I'm always excited to talk about it and kind of educate the fellows and residents more. Just because for us in the neuro ICU, this is really our bread and butter. So we want to make sure that everyone's to speed, so that way we can help these kids in as best a way as possible. Oh, absolutely!
1: Perfect, perfect. Yeah, let's get let's get right started. So Anuj, will you? I mean, that's already introduced this somewhat, but will you tell us you know, why status is such an important topic for us to talk about today?
3: So the main thing that we see in our ICU is the sheer quantity of kids who present with status epilepticus. It is a very common condition that results in kids being admitted to the hospital, especially in the ICU. There's estimates that there's anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000 cases annually per year, yeah. which is a sizable number given our percentage of kids' with epilepsy. There is a relatively low mortality rate, anywhere from 0 to 3%, but status epilepticus does result in a significant morbidity in the form of future development of epilepsy, um, either increasing or worsening of developmental delays, primarily from a motor or cognitive perspective behavioral impairments, and as you guys are all well aware, a significant reduction in the quality of life. And the main importance for kind of why I like to talk to people about it is that there is very strong evidence to show that early recognition and treatment does improve the overall outcomes in these patients and can significantly help reduce the morbidity that we see.
2: Oh, wow. So having having an educated team is really going to help your patients.
3: Yeah, and kind of the as neurologists, we always like to harp on the fact that time is brain. So really being able to do, this applies to seizures, to strokes, to a variety of different neurologic conditions. But the being able to act timely, diagnose and treat is really key to management. And there are much more pediatricians, there are much more emergency room doctors, intensivists, than there are neurointensivists. So the faster you guys can, and work to diagnose and treat, the better it is for the patient and the easier it is for us to then come in and help and help out with the management. No, absolutely.
2: All right. So let's start with a case here. I'm going to run the patient by you. An outside emergency department calls for a previously healthy immunized eight-month-old who came into their ED via ambulance after a generalized tonic-clonic seizure at home. They gave rectal diastat initially because they didn't have IV access. Upon arrival, she was sleepy and not at her neurologic baseline. A few minutes later, she started seizing again, and it has not stopped. At this point, it has been 10 minutes with constant seizure activity. They've gotten IV access, giving her 0.1 mix per kg of IV Ativan, and they've ordered 20 mix per kg of Keppra and called you.
0: So this is very common as a fellow or an intensivist to get this call from the ER. You know, Change the age, change the past medical history, but this is a very common thing. And when they even come up, I think a lot of what you deal with also is just the panic from the family, yeah, if they've never seen a seizure before, it's incredibly scary. Um so I think it's a really good thing to talk
1: about, so maybe jumping right in Anuj, like, you know, is this something that we call like what are your initial thoughts when you hear this case, and can we call this status quite yet?
3: So the short answer is yes. So when we think of status, we think of it in in two different ways. So historically, we've always thought of status as a seizure that lasts for 30 minutes or more, or where you have two or more seizures without recovery of consciousness in between during this time period. Realistically, though, we know that that's not how we practice in in our hospital settings. Operationally, we look at more of a definition of status as five minutes of a continuous seizure or two or more seizures without complete recovery of consciousness in between. So essentially, for this case that we have for this child, we would definitely consider this status epilepticus, and we would want to work towards a treatment algorithm for that.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it really – it's harder to stop the longer it goes, right?
3: Yeah. And so that that's where the big change from that 30 minutes to five minutes occurred. So historically, we had used 30 minutes because beyond 30 minutes was the time based off animal models that we saw that you could get brain damage as a result of a continuous seizure. But what we realize is that if we treat before five minutes, well, it becomes, one, easier to treat, and two, most seizures will stop spontaneously before five minutes. Once it starts to go past five minutes, though, what we notice is that seizures tend to have what I like to consider a juggernaut phenomena. And it's not often that we relate neurologic terms to X-Men characters, but realistically, what we see is that the longer a seizure goes on, the harder it is for the seizure to stop. As a result, we use that five minute cutoff as our treatment point just because it optimizes our likelihood of preventing things from escalating to that 30 minute mark and causing that significantly higher degree risk of brain injury and further morbidity.
0: Yeah. And that's also because as a seizure goes on longer, the GABA receptors actually endocytose within the cell. And almost all of the medications that we use to stop seizures, act in some way on those GABA receptors, which makes sense. Seizures are an overstimulation of the brain. You have to kind of comment down by acting on the GABA receptors. So there's actually just less target substrate for things like benzodiazepines to work on the longer that a seizure goes. And another little trick that I do is I always actually try to either look at the clock or something when I come in, because timing five minutes in real time, when somebody's actively seizing, and you have a nurse—well, usually the nurse is pretty calm because they're a picky nurse—but the parents freaking out, and all of these things. I think it really helps you kind of gauge exactly how long it's going on.
1: Sure, definitely a lot for the entire team. You know, as a first-year fellow, you know, I can recognize a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. You know, those sudden loss of consciousness, the jerking movements, but. You know, there's also a lot of ambiguity here, and sometimes diagnosing a seizure is not quite so simple. Do you guys have any tricks to determine if a patient's actually having a seizure?
3: Yeah, sure. So first off, it could be some, I agree with you that it could be very difficult. And part of this is one for kids who have generalized tonic-clonic seizures. The longer a seizure goes on, by nature, kind of the amplitude or kind of how strong those jerky movements are will slowly get less and less. To the point where you may not really see any clear jerks. You may just see very subtle quivering of the muscles. You may see very subtle mouth movements or eye movements. And it can be really difficult to tell whether this is a true convulsive seizure or whether this is due to a medication effect or not. So there are certain things that we can look for to help us gauge kind of the risk for whether a child is actively seizing or not. Some of those things that we can look for will be whether they respond to external stimuli. Frequently, we'll give them noxious stimuli, either with sternal rub or kind of pinching them in the extremities and see if they respond to us. A lot of people will check people's response. I haven't found that to be as good of a correlate. So typically, I'll look to see if, there's st- if we can stimulate them out of it or not. But realistically, these can be very, very challenging. And it's confounded by the fact that these are kids who, at certain points, may be very ill, getting many sedative medications, which can cloud the picture, or in the process of getting lines or, mm-hmm. in certain cases, being intubated. So it can make it very challenging to gauge whether they're truly seizing or not.
2: Oh, wow. Absolutely. So let's circle back. Now that we have thought a little bit about what status looks like and how we define status, let's circle back to our case. So we've got an eight-month-old infant with multiple seizures now in status epilepticus. Even if this is all we know about her, what are your first steps in caring for a patient with status epilepticus? What are you guys thinking?
0: Well, usually, you know, the intensivist is the first person seeing them, not the neurologist or the neurointensivist. And so it's kind of like every patient, you know, ABCs are important in these patients just as they're important in every patient. So they're usually hooked up to the monitor. You want to check for any chest rise and make sure they're actually protecting their airway and that they're not retaining a lot of CO2. I mean, that also kind of depends on how long the seizure is going, right? Like, so if you think you can stop this seizure in a few minutes and they're desatting and becoming hypercarbic, it might be more, it might be better to kind of use a bag mask in order to ventilate them instead of immediately intubating them. But if they're not coming out of it for a while and you think they're not going to be able to protect their airway and they're going to be hypercarbic, then it might be important to protect their airway with intubation. But you also have to think any other medications that you give for intubation do cloud your clinical mm-hmm. picture. So it's just kind of like you have to take it as a patient-by-patient basis. And they may also need any additional oxygen and you know, obviously things like that. Non-invasive end title is helpful a lot in these patients just to see, especially if they're going in and out of seizures just to kind of make sure that you're not missing anything. And then obviously, you know, you want to do multiple neuro exams of these patients just to see how they're doing. Oh, and IV access. Oh my gosh. Very important. Where is your access? Yes, exactly. Because, you know, I would love for everybody that comes up to the IVCU to have great IV access, but a lot of times that's not the case. So these kids all, even if they have IV access, I'll often get a second one just because they are high risk. And if they're seizing, they're more likely to lose their IV access, obviously, and get just some basic labs, especially sugar. Always think about that, but also basic electrolytes, especially including calcium and magnesium, as those are two kind of big electrolyte causes of
2: seizures.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I always try and focus, I tell the residents and the fellows, is to focus on trying to find some of the reversible causes for the seizures. So that's where it's checking the glucose, looking for hypoglycemia, looking for any electrolyte abnormalities. And the other major reversible factor would be fevers. So treating fevers if they have an elevated temperature or not.
2: I will say anecdotally, in this past year with With sort of lockdown isolation in Washington, D.C., at least we have been seeing a spike in hypocalcemic seizures from hypovitaminosis D. And it's always an interesting story to talk about.
3: Yeah. and, And that's why, while we, while sometimes it may take a little bit of time to get those labs back, the sooner we can send it, the better off, the faster we can start to treat these kids. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And for the dextrose replacement, I always kind of just remember if it's low, you want to give dextrous immediately and you want to always give an increments of kind of, it should add up to 50. So if you give D10, it's five cc's per kilo. If you give D25, it's two cc's per kilo if it's d50 which i feel like we give less of in pediatrics mm-hmm. it's one cc per kilo but that's just an easy way of doing it because it's an emergency so those quick formulas or things to help out me remember
2: really really help oh absolutely five cc's to per kilo of d10
1: yeah if you don't correct the hypoglycemia or the hypocalcemia all of your medicines they probably won't work for this seizure so you got to knock out those reversible causes first so, Manette, Anuj, let's say you're at the bedside, your team's working on that, on the initial stabilization, and the patient's been seizing for longer than five minutes, so you know treatment's indicated. Benzodiazepines, we know it's the best choice initially, but how do you decide your initial therapy?
3: So I always recommend giving the treatment that is easiest and the fastest to give. So if you have IV access, obviously we would want to give an IV benzodiazepine first. If you don't, don't wait to get IV access. Use a rectal or intranasal or a sublingual form or intramuscular, whatever you have at your disposal. Kind of like we had talked about at the beginning, time is brain. So whichever one you could give fastest, whichever you have at the bedside should be your benzodiazepine of choice. Typically, the two IV benzodiazepines that we use the most frequently are lorazepam and diazepam. There have been multiple studies that have looked at the two, and overall the efficacy is roughly the same between the two of them in terms of both seizure cessation as well as side effect profile. Out of the non-IV options, diastat, rectal diastats is the most common that we see both in the hospital and in the emergency setting. But now more and more, we are using intranasal options with diazepam and midazolam, as well as buccal and intramuscular options. I won't harp on the dosing too much. Typically, what we use for lorazepam, which is probably the most common, is 0.1 mg per kg per dose with a max of 4 mg. With all of these benzodiazepine options, you can always repeat if the seizure continues. So, for example, in our child, if we give a 0.1 mg per kg dose of the lorazepam, he still is seizing, then we can go ahead and give another dose right after that. Again, this is going to be more kind of user's choice. There's no right or wrong answer whether you do another benzo or move on to an AD, but we'll kind of discuss those options as we move forward.
0: Yeah, and I think those max doses are kind of important in pediatrics because a lot of times we'll say, oh, 0.1 mg per kg but if it's a 15 year old who's 80 kilos you know mm-hmm. you don't want to give them 8 milligrams and then you're kind of in a lot of trouble from other issues yeah, as absolutely. well so just recognizing that in your teenagers
2: I will also doing the discharge med rec for patients with epilepsy. I will say that I always thought it was interesting, the rectal diastat dosing chart and the way that it varies with both the weight of the patient and the age of the patient.
3: Yeah. It's always important to use that card, that chart for your guidance with that. And especially now that we're getting more and more of the intranasal options, there's a lot of age and weight-based recommendations so using your up-to-dates, your lexicoms, your kind of online resources is very helpful. I still keep a photo of the diastat card on my phone just to keep that as a easy kind of reminder whenever I need to do those prescriptions or do those
1: And You may have mentioned this already, but say your patient continues to seize after that first dose of benzodiazepine. How long will you wait until you re-dose that medication or choose something else?
3: So typically, I'll give them a couple of minutes. Realistically, you're looking at anywhere from two to five minutes. But what I always, especially when this is occurring in the inpatient or the ER setting, what I always say is once you've given your first benzo, If they're still seizing after about a minute, I would at least start to get the second one ready Mm -hmm. because typically by the time they draw it up, you're ready to go. You're looking another minute to two minutes before that's ready. So at least there you're at a three-minute window where if they're still seizing, you can get ready to go ahead and give another round. In terms of what to give, typically we'll go ahead and give a second-line benzo, but a lot of times now instead of doing that, we will move towards other AED options or anti-seizure medicines.
2: Oh, yeah. So once you've gotten your two doses of your benzo of choice in probably Ativan, what is your favorite second-line agent? I know that there's been some recent literature discussion in the space.
3: So historically, the main seizure medicines that we've used have been phosphonetone, valproic acid, or capra. There have been multiple studies that looked at these medicines in comparison, but most recently we had the ESET trial that came out a year or two ago that compared the three of these in a randomized controlled trial and overall showed that there was really no significant difference in terms of efficacy between the three of them. Kepra maybe has a little bit of a more favorable side effect profile, but overall you can use any three of them and expect a comparable efficacy. The main thing that I always try and remind residents and fellows on is that the dosing with these is a little bit different than what we may have dosed in the past. So if your phosphenytoin is your same 20 mg per kg as we've done with a max of f- 1,500 milligrams, but Depakote is now, or valproic acid is now 40 mg per kg with a max of 3 grams, as opposed to typically we bolus with 20 mg per kg. So for status, oh, we use okay. a higher dose. And Kepra is actually, the recommended dose is 60 mg per kilogram with a max of 4.5 grams, which is way more than the typical 20 mg per kilogram that we've dosed. And to me, this is something I very frequently will use, the 60 milligram per kilogram in high doses of Keppra for status management and have found that it has resulted in a much more comparable seizure cessation rate than when we were using the 20 per kilo in the past. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, I love Keppra. I think it's a great drug. Because it's it doesn't stop their breathing, you know, which is really great as an intensivist, as a side effect profile. And I agree. I feel like a lot of people were giving twenty mix per kg, but we now have evidence that shows, you know, what is actually equivalent is this 60 mix per keg. So I think, you know, go big and like Anoush talked about earlier, we want to stop these seizures and we want to stop them fast.
2: That's powerful. Can I can I just ask about valproic acid? I feel like I've had the fear of valproic acid put into me. You give it to someone with a metabolic disorder. Disorder, liver failure immediately. Do we? Can you guys comment on that at all?
3: Yes. Yeah, so I, I, the main areas where I would not give valproate, it would generally be a child under two years of age. I would be hesitant if they have known liver disease already or if they have kind of known mitochondrial conditions. But if they don't have that, it's still a reasonable option to give. I would say that it's not it's not used as frequently in the US but in other countries and other parts of the developing world, valproic acid is a much easier medicine to get IV. so as a result there is a lot of literature on it and the data for it is quite good so especially there's multiple studies published out of India in which they frequently will use it as a first-line IV agent in the management of status epilepticus with pretty good outcomes. So I, I think again here we may benefit from having other options, but it is still a perfectly reasonable medicine to to keep in mind.
2: Oh,
1: wow. That's interesting. Would you stay away from Valpro in like an adolescent female if you didn't know she was pregnant or not?
3: I would be hesitant, but as a one time dose, if it, if that's all we have, I would go ahead and give it. I think if we don't, if we have the other options, I would probably lean towards those. But if valproic acid is all we have and the kid's seizing, you go ahead and give it no matter what.
1: Sure. This could be a good segue into phenobarb. So thinking back on neonatal ICU rotation, that was a common medication used for babies that were seizing. Uh, does it have a role in status at all?
0: Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry.
3: It does. So phenobarbital is still kind of within that kind of algorithm for management of status. But due to its side effect profile, yeah, I would say that the phosphatidones of alproic acids and kepras of the world have maintained its relative superiority over phenobarbital. So while we still keep it as one option, it's not typically kind of our first seizure medicine that we go to. And I would say that that'll probably continue to drop down the line as other medicines like glucosamide or Brivaracetam get better studied in the management of status epilepticus um, as we go forward.
1: Oh, wow. And side effects for phenobarb, you're kind of getting a respiratory depression and sedation.
3: Yeah, respiratory depression and sedation is probably a little bit higher with phenobarbital as compared to the other three that we have been focusing on before. Understood. So
2: to keep going with our case, so now our patient who, eight-month-old, status epilepticus, initially received 20 mg per kg of Keppra has now gotten an additional 40 mg per kg of Keppra to really optimize her dose. Despite this, she continues to seize 10 minutes after the medication is given. I know that we're starting to get into a really difficult situation here without much evidence, but how do you two think about choosing the next step in treatment and escalating appropriately?
3: So for us, um, at this point, once they have failed – to respond to adequate doses of the first and second line AEDs, in this case, Ativan and Kepra, We would define this as refractory status epilepticus. And this is a, a very common ICU emergency that we deal with because once they've reached this point, these are typically kids that will be unlikely to be admitted to the floor, or if they're already there, will be rapidly being transferred to the ICU. So it's important to kind of use this as a definition point uh, kind of because that'll be where we need to then shift our thought process in terms of next steps in management Just for our listeners out there, frequently you will hear a term called super refractory status epilepticus. This is where status epilepticus has persisted for more than 24 hours after administration of anesthesia or recurs after reduction or withdrawal of anesthesia. So again, this is just a definition that we use. But again, for the management of our patient right now, these are just things we have in mind but not as relevant. Both of these, though, are associated with significant long-term neurologic dysfunction and have a higher mortality rate.
0: Yeah. And I would say for these patients, you you know, you know end up giving them, obviously in close consultation with your neurologist or neurointensivist, more medications. And so it's really important for the intensivist to just continually reassess their ABCs because all of the medications that you're giving, or not all of them, but a lot of them affect their central nervous system, their central nervous system depressants, obviously, and they do affect their respiratory drive. So maybe if they didn't come to you, they came to you spontaneously breathing and they were able to protect their airway, they may not do that. And then the other thing is you have to watch their blood pressure very carefully. I know, you know, with the new sh- some of these children that we've had on long-term versed drips or even short-term versed drips, sometimes you have to just keep going up on them in order to help the seizure. But with that comes, you know, intubation and pressors. And that's okay. The most important thing is to stop the seizure and save their brain. And if you need those temporizing procedures, you know that's why we're there as intensivists.
3: And Alice, you had actually brought up a good point about the limitation in terms of data. So once you've given your second line AEDs and benzos, and you're now in this point of refractory status epilepticus, really there's not much data to support any particular treatment algorithm. Typically, what we'll do is we'll move towards the initiation of a sedative drip but whether that's midazolam, propofol, pentobarbital, ketamine, is really kind of an institutional or user's choice. Many institutions have their own set pathways for which anesthetic of choice they would want to use. A lot is driven by the intensivists and their comfort level with things. Here at Nicholas Children's, we will use midazolam mm-hmm. typically as our first-line sedative agent. And the goal is really to kind of use these sedative drips in order to more strongly inhibit and suppress the epileptic activity. One thing I always like to reinforce with the residents and fellows – is that with all of these things, you don't want to just start a drip. You want to make sure that you bolus first and then start the drip because what you're aiming to do is really to saturate the receptors, especially whatever remaining GABA receptors are there. And using the boluses is really key in order to do that. So typically what we'll do is we'll, we will give a bolus, suppose I start in the lambda, even at a low rate of 0.05 or 1, I will typically bolus at that number, at 0.05 or 0.1, I'll typically bolus at that number or even higher and then start the drip And every time we increase the drip, we will bolus again in order to kind of, again, just optimize the success of that drip.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times at this point, these kids are on EEG unless we're certain that it's all clinical seizures. And I've kind of had both cases where you know that they're all clinical seizures and other ones where you do need EEG confirmation. So this is definitely a point where you're really closely talking to your neurologist to help you out with managing these drips and the doses. Oh,
2: absolutely.
1: You bring up a good point about continuous EEG, and we'll definitely come back to that, but this might be a good time to review some of the high points of our conversation so far. So, you know, what I understand is important, quick early identification of status epilepticus, trying to get medications in at around five minutes if possible. Start with benzodiazepines, and there's not really a clear-cut favorite between uh, lorazepam or diazepam. But really, the the take-home point is to give what's available to you at that time. You know, moving on to your second-line agents, Keppra, Phospheny, and Valproate are the three that seemingly are, are stronger than others. Uh, with phenobarb kind of falling by the wayside because of its respiratory depression side effects. And then as we move to that third phase therapy, it's really institutionally specific to what they have available kind of in their protocols written. Any other kind of big picture thoughts from that first part of our conversation you want to reinforce?
0: No, I think that's good.
1: Okay, so kind of thinking about continuous EEG, we kind of mentioned earlier in our conversation about this non-convulsive status subtype You know, we're always worried about that in patients with altered mental status who are high risk of seizures or especially who came in with status. You know, what's the role of continuous EEG in patients admitted to the PICU with with status?
3: For us, EEGs really are bread and butter for helping to manage this refractory status or non-convulsive status epilepticus. There have been numerous studies over the last kind of 10 to 20 years that have shown that in the ICU with patients who are admitted for a variety of different etiologies on EEG, anywhere from 10 to 40% of them will have seizures, with a high number of them having electrographic seizures, i.e. seizures without clinical symptoms in which EEG is necessary in order to detect that epileptic activity. Of those patients, about a third will meet criteria for status epilepticus. And like I mentioned, about only, about a third of those will only have electrographic seizures. So that EEG is really, really important. In the ICU, especially, there's a variety of different patient types that may benefit from continuous EEG. Obviously, the kids who are in refractory status epilepticus would be the main ones, especially kind of like I mentioned earlier. Their clinical symptoms and the movements that they're having may kind of diminish in terms of amplitude and may be harder to to see. But there are a variety of other kids who would benefit from continuous EEG monitoring. These are kids who had, were in status and now have prolonged altered mental status where there's a high risk for subclinical seizures. Kids who are sedated and paralyzed, whether that's due to ECMO or other kind of, or other etiologies are at high risk kids post-cardiac arrest, kids with epilepsy, with sepsis, kids with traumatic brain injury, intraparenchymal hemorrhages, the list kind of goes on and on. But as you can tell from that list, that's a significant percentage of our kids within an ICU setting. But overall, we know that the rates of seizures, especially electrographic, are very high. And EEG is really helpful to manage these kids because one, we can use the EEG to help our titration of anti-seizure medicines. Mm -hmm. We can use it to monitor for seizures in the setting of especially neuromuscular blockade, and it's just a helpful screener for subclinical seizures and sta- subclinical status epilepticus.
2: I have a – that sounds like a really powerful tool, and I have a question about that. As the person at the bedside, especially in the setting of monitoring a high-risk patient for status epilepticus, who is looking at that EEG and how often? Is it the neurology consult team? Is it an epileptologist at home? Is it someone at night like just checking them a couple times?
3: So each institution has its own model, and a lot of that is dependent on the resources in hand. So the initial screener may vary. Sometimes it's the technologist who is monitoring these things, these EEGs live in the, in the epilepsy monitoring unit. There may be either neurology residents or epilepsy fellows who screen the EEGs. Sometimes it's the on-call attending who's responsible for watching these either multiple times or one time a night. But there are also many institutions where they just don't have that capability. And as a result, these EEGs may go unmonitored, or there may be kind of a, once-a-night screening, if you will. Obviously, our hope and goal is to develop easier ways to improve this screening and utilize even PICU Fellows, the intensive care team, more to help with screening for more rapid seizure detection.
0: Yeah, and then, you know, obviously, if there's anything clinical, you can always call, no matter what sort of screening protocol there is. If there's anything clinical or a change in the patient's status, you know, I frequently called just to have them check you know, just in that
3: particular time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and especially in the ICU, there are certain patients that we know are a little bit more at high risk, who we as neurologists will generally keep a much, much closer eye on. So these will be kids with persistently abnormal mental status following a seizure, where about a third of those will be having subclinical electrographic seizures, Patients with traumatic brain injury with altered mental status will be at high risk. Kids who already had a baseline abnormal EEG, where we've connected them, they may be not having seizures, but their background activity is very abnormal, where they may have periodic discharges, which are a marker for higher risk for seizures, or have a significantly irregular background activity. And then finally, there's those kids where they are on sedation or paralysis, such as kids with ECMO, where we will be kind of fed... Much higher kind of higher guard, if you know, absolutely
2: Trauma is a catalyst. It provokes significant change in the lives of survivors as well as in the lives of their caregivers. Join me, Carrie Rickert, on my podcast Transformational Trauma and Healing. As our guests share their stories of trauma and the resources that have been beneficial to them, we will celebrate our guests' successes and learn from their struggles, adding tools to our trauma survival toolbox along the way.
1: You know, continuous EEG is so incredibly valuable, but it is so resource-intensive Help me understand. You know, how many patients will you miss if you just use these spot EEGs? Like if say, you say you have a spot EEG that's normal, like how how reassuring can that actually be in some of these high risk patients?
3: Any EEG is better than none. So there have been studies that shown that even kind of regular spot EEGs do have some benefit in terms of picking up seizures. But overall, you're still going to be missing quite a bit as opposed to doing a continuous EG. Basically, kind of once you transition to continuous EG, your sensitivity and specificity for picking up seizures jumps up considerably. So while if you don't have the option to do continuous EG, frequent short one hour EGs is still better than none. Mm-hmm. But obviously the goal would be to push for continuous EG as soon as possible. Understood.
2: And then once a patient is on a continuous EEG, how do you two think about when it's safe to stop the continuous EEG if we haven't seen any seizures?
3: So there are a variety of different guidelines in terms of how long to keep kids on. Largely, that depends on the etiology and the reason for monitoring an EEG. For kids who have ultra-mental status post a seizure, typically we'll monitor them anywhere for typically up to 24 hours – There are certain other scenarios like cardiac arrest or ECMO where there are some thoughts of monitoring these kids up to 48 hours. Realistically, I would say that our institution, we typically monitor for about 24 hours for most of these kids, and then use certain background features to gauge our level of concern and and potentially monitor for long. Wonderful. For the most part, 24 hours is going to be your kind of Mm go-to number.
2: A good rule of thumb.
3: But again, the, the main thing is you want to initiate the EEG as soon as possible, Again, sometimes we may be limited by resources such as technologists or machines, but as soon as we can, the better off we'll be.
0: Yeah, and I think also being in conversation with your neurologist, because there is, you know, it's not an immediate technology, right? You have to have the technologist put the leads on the head and start recording, and it takes a, a little bit of time. And so I think what I always do is after it's been on for, you know, a couple minutes to a half an hour, I'll talk to the neurologist again and just be like, hey, letting you know that the EEG is on so that they can make sure to look at it. So they're not at home just kind of trying to figure out when this is going on or in the hospital, depending on what
3: time of day it is. Absolutely. And I think the nice thing is nowadays we are having newer technologies come out. So there are a number of technologies focusing on rapid EEG application with kind of fewer electrodes to aid in more rapid seizure diagnosis. So this is largely being used in adults, but we're seeing it being used more and more in kids as well. And the hope is that this will speed up our time to getting the EEG on, speed up our time to diagnosis. And I think this has especially more use in centers with limited technologists, limited overnight coverage for continuous EEG. Because like I said, having some EEG is better than none.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that.
1: So in addition to this you know, new technology that you mentioned, you know, what do you see on the horizon with status? I know you mentioned earlier there may be some other medications who may be kind of coming up for uh, additional choices for second phase therapy. Is there anything else that we need to be aware of?
3: Yes, yeah, so there, there's a number of different medication options, whether that's lacosamide or brivaracetam that we're slowly adding to our status epilepticus kind of algorithm. In addition to that, there is kind of ongoing studies looking at adjunct medications, so including neurosteroids and other kind of immunomodulatory medicines to see whether that may aid in the resolution of status epilepticus, especially refractory and super refractory status epilepticus. There have been a number of studies that have looked at the ketogenic diet to aid in the management of super refractory status epilepticus with overall good outcomes. Uh And especially here at Nicholas Children's, we've been utilizing epilepsy surgery in appropriate cases when kids have been in super refractory status epilepticus. Oh, wow. So we actually had a paper that came out about now, I think it's about 10 years ago, where we look at our outcomes. And overall, we were able to help a number of kids and resolve their status epilepticus. Again, we would like to do non-surgical options, but there are certain kids where they just need that due to whether it's structural abnormalities or you name it, where these kids are ones who would benefit from more timely surgical intervention.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I have not heard of that before.
3: So I I think the sky is really the limit. I think we're getting better in terms of our detection of status epilepticus, both through more rapid EEG. We now have kind of digital analysis softwares where we can analyze the EEG and kind of detect seizures more rapidly. So I think that's where we'll hopefully be able to get more access for the ICU fellows, the ICU team, where they can help with the screening for status epilepticus. Mm -hmm. And then kind of, as I mentioned, I think we're seeing more and more in terms of the treatment options available to us. It's not just the benzos and the three AEDs. We now have a lot more things that we have in our kind of treatment armamentarium. Wow.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that the research is happening and that it's such a rapidly evolving field. It sounds like we'll have some more options to improve outcomes.
3: Yeah. So we can- and I, I think we've, we've realized very clearly that the longer seizures go, the worse it is for the patient. And then the faster we detect and treat these things, the better off these kids are. For that, there's one, if not a surprise, but we now have very clear data to support that. So now it's just a matter of streamlining our protocols and getting everything moving much faster.
1: Hey, well, this has been an awesome conversation about the bread and butter topic in the PICU. And as a early fellow, you know, hearing your thoughts on maybe where the guidelines aren't as clear is, is really insightful when I have that next patient with status epilepticus. Anything else that you want to cover before we wrap up our conversation today?
0: I don't think so.
3: Yeah, this has been great. Thank you, Zach and Alice, for helping to organize this.
0: Yeah, thank you. This was an awesome experience. Thank you both for coming.
1: Are there any particular, if our listeners were to remember, you know, one or two facts about today's conversation? Do you have any particular take-home points for them?
3: From my side, it's time is brain. The sooner we can diagnose and treat these patients, the better off they'll, they'll be. So use whatever is easiest, whatever is fastest, and use appropriate dosing.
0: Yeah, and I would say just also act fast. And don't forget to monitor the ABCs because those are things that can also cause a lot of damage either from the seizure or during the treatment of the seizure. So as long as you can stabilize them during that treatment period, they can have better outcomes.
3: Yeah, and we always have these discussions with the ICU team in terms of the balance between seizure control and seizure resolution versus the side effects in terms of respiratory depression and blood pressure management. I always, as a neurologist, not surprisingly, push towards stopping the seizure as fast as possible because knowing that we have medicines like pressors or intubation options to manage the respiratory side effects. Obviously, we would like to avoid that if possible, but like if we've been harping on, the longer the seizure goes, the harder it is to stop. So if we can do things in a timely manner, overall, the child will be better off.
2: The ultimate, protecting the ultimate end organ there.
3: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, no bias on part. <laughs> <that. laughs> well, Adija
2: Vinette, thank you both again for coming. Thanks, guys. My Charif. pleasure. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out PedsCrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeeds on Twitter and at peedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening.